all the things that you have to do now to make your career work if you're a creative person, if you're a content creator, which is what they now call artists, right? Uh, are, everything that you have to do to make that work are things that were anathema to us. Mm. Just coming of age, branding yourself, promoting yourself, um, you, you know, conveying your message with absolutely no irony. Those were like, that's selling out. The least right? cool things you could do. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today I talk with author and essayist Megan Daum, whose 2019 book, The Problem with Everything, comes out in paperback today. Megan first came on my radar more than 20 years ago when her first book, My Misspent Youth, came out and she was being touted as the voice of Generation X. Now, by the 2010s, the very notion of being called the voice of your generation had become the stuff of satire, perhaps most memorably in this 2012 episode of the HBO show Girls. I think that I may be the voice of my generation, or at least a voice of a generation. Now, of course, when you think about it, we all can be a voice of a generation these days, especially when blogs and social media diversify the way we talk about things. But voice of a generation generalizations notwithstanding, what I always liked about Megan Daum's essays was the way she brought nuance and self-reflection to the otherwise generic way we tend to talk about culture in America. And the idea of nuance has only become more relevant as the rise of social media algorithms sent cultural conversations into self-righteous political echo chambers in recent years. Megan's book, The Trouble with Everything, expands on this notion of nuance, as does her podcast, The Unspeakable. More about both of those in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. Megan and I talk about the importance of cultural nuance over the course of our conversation. We also talk about Megan's decision to move from New York to Nebraska for a few years early in her career and how that affected her way of seeing the world. We talk about midlife career pivots and how constant career pivots have almost become mandatory for creative people trying to navigate the world of media. We talk about contentious political arguments known as the culture wars, which Megan defines in more detail for us in the context of our conversation. And we reflect on how there are certain nuances we wrote about as recently as 10 years ago that would automatically be misinterpreted in the highly politicized social media environment of the 2020s. Not just nuances in the world of politics, but on subjects like travel that I, for one, feel are best uncoupled from rigid political definitions if you want to discuss them in an honest way. I actually rant a bit on this topic at the very end of our conversation, since it feels to me like travel works best when you can learn from your mistakes and be humble, whereas we seem to be living in a time of performative certainty where people are reluctant to be vulnerable and leave themselves open to making mistakes. Just so you know, when I mention Foucault in this part of the conversation, I'm talking about the mid-20th century French postmodernist philosopher Michel Foucault. I also mention a somewhat obscure 1990s academic magazine called Lingua Franca to illustrate how the echo chambers of social media existed in academia before social media. A quote from the magazine that has always resonated with me reads, quote, What is now called cultural criticism is now a form of Xeroxing. Tell me your ideology and I'll tell you in advance what you'll say about any work of literature, especially those you haven't read, end quote. Our conversation actually starts on the topic of what it feels like to be called the voice of your generation while you're still young. Let's listen in. Well, Megan, I first knew of you as when your first book, My Misspent Youth, came out in 2001, and you were sort of framed as the voice of my generation, Generation X, which made me jealous because I 
thought maybe I should be the voice of the generation, even though I'd hardly written anything at that year. And in a sense, people had been called voice of Generation X for 10 years. It feels like you're the last legacy voice of a generation, right? Oh, like that trope got out of fashion somehow. Well, I think, you know, um, oh, uh, um, not Hannah Horvath, um, Lena Dunham talked about it. For millennials, yeah. but it was that was almost ironical, and it was like that was in the social media era when maybe it mattered less. So I'm curious to know what it was, what it felt like to be called the joy, voice of a generation in the year 2001, and what that even meant. Oh, it felt like probably some publicist wrote that, or it just popped up in some kind of press release or blurb or something like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't. It's not like I, you know, was handed the key to the generation. Like, oh, we hereby annoy you voice of your generation. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, I've always been kind of, it's kind of embarrassing. It's such a cliche and what does it mean? But at the same time, uh, you know, you, you, you need all the good publicity you can get. So it's not like I, I would certainly never introduce myself that way, (laughs) but if I see it, I don't, you know, and I don't like put it in, in my, in my bio or anything. It's never come from my desk, Right. but I haven't, you know, there's no point in trying to correct the record. I mean, there's there's many voices of their generations. I, I love that Hannah Horvath line. I think that was the first episode of Girls. She said something like, "I," to her parents, I feel like I, I have it in me to be the voice of my generation, or at least a voice of a generation. Exactly. <laughs> no, because that's true. You know, it felt like by the time she said that, it, it felt like it was true. Like young people had all sorts of access to making their voices heard. Whereas you're part of like a short list of like 10 or 12 people who at various times, if not assumed the mantle, at least their PR person, were trying to promote this book of essays by a young person as voice of a generation. Yeah. And I guess there was something, the baby boomers were so dominant um, and continue to be really, um, uh, that like, I think there was something sort of novel about Gen X and the whole, uh, kind of category of Gen X. I think it really only, I remember there was like a cover time magazine cover story in 1990 or something Mm. like that. And so, um, you know, it hadn't been that many years that people had even started thinking about Gen X as a, as a, as a cohort. So it might've just been a sort of new thing to think about. Yeah, I'm I'm a little bit fixated with this, and I apologize to my audience for being fixated with this, but (laughs) I actually interviewed Sophronia Scott, who wrote that Time Magazine article for for an episode in season one, I think. And then James Greer uh, wrote an an essay for Spin, which also was sort of, he's the guy who connected Lollapalooza to Douglas Copeland. Right. Yeah. And and so I've I've sort of tried to trace this. M- maybe in addition to you being the last legacy media voice of a generation, you're the last generation interviewee for me because I've interviewed everyone else. But um, uh, it, it just seems weird. I mean, you wrote yourself uh, years later that you've hardly done anything in your twenties. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I did a lot of sitting around and just looking out the window. If I had a window, looking out the window at my brick wall and thinking deep thoughts. Right. Well, I, I think that whole trope, I think the reason it's become less meaningful is that it the whole idea of the voice of a generation has always been from sort of a, an elite, like, hothouse type environment. Did you ever read the, the Generation X reader, the Gen X reader that was edited by Douglas Rushkoff? Oh, I don't think I read that. I remember X Marks the Spot by Jeff 
Gordonier, if I'm pronouncing that right. Gordonier. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I read Doug's book about this. Yeah, the Gordonier book um, was written in 2007, so it was sort of a retrospective. Um, the Gen X reader was came out in like 94. And basically, it was once they realized that there was a demographic called the G- Generation X, they decided to put together an anthology of Generation X writing. Um, and it, it was interesting. I, I It sort of bothered me. I looked it up later that like almost everybody was either from like a Princeton, Harvard-type environment or like an Oberlin-Reed-type environment, that, it, that that all of the essays, with with a few exceptions, were from the, the chattering class that seems to obsess about that sort of thing. Yeah, and if I'm not mistaken, Doug Rushkoff, like Douglas Copeland, is not Gen X. Hmm. I think he's I think he's on the cusp. I think he might technically be a baby boomer. Certainly Douglas Copeland is. Yeah, you know. Anytime you see an anthology of writing, uh, you know, you're certainly not going to get uh, a, um, a sample, you know, representative cross-section of America. Yeah. These are the writers people think of for anthologies. Right. Yeah. So I think for all the headaches that come with sort of everybody yelling at each other, you know, media environment we have right now, at least um, there's more voices yelling at each other, I guess. Um <laughs> yes. Well, I was going to save this for later, but I might as well ask it now that I think it's at the end of my misspent youth, you talk about going to Nebraska sort of for financial situations. Yeah. Um, and I know that you were there for four years. Uh, you wrote about it uh, very vividly in fiction form in, in, in a way that I could identify being from the middle of the country. Um, so how did that change? Gosh, how big of this question is going to be? How did... Uh, why exactly did you go to Nebraska? I got a little hint of it, but and then how did your life change there, and why did you leave Nebraska? And do you sometimes wonder if you should have stayed or if you might go back? Um, well, I went there. I was definitely broke, so I was like sixty thousand dollars in debt from Columbia, which is nothing by today's standards, but was pretty felt pretty overwhelming at the time. Plus, like I had a lot of other, you know, I had like dental work. I didn't have health insurance, so you know, I would like end up with these kind of big medical bills or dental bills and whatever. Just I was, I was actually doing pretty well as a freelancer. I was flying around, traveling, doing stories. So, like on one hand, it was this kind of it had this kind of veneer of success, um, but I just wasn't making enough money to to get by really. Um, and so I was going more and more into debt. And so I kind of just, I don't know, I, I had been, I, I, one of the magazine stories that had taken me out of town had taken me to Lincoln, Nebraska. And I had always had like a, like a love for the prairie. And I, I just, I really liked that kind of landscape and big sky and flat land and that kind of stark, kind of terrain. Um, and so I remember just being like really taken with Nebraska and I met some nice people and, you know, it always, this is, I mean, I make fun of myself in the book and I think also in, yeah, I I make fun of the, both the character in the novel and myself in the essay, which is like, Oh, they listen to NPR here too. Like it's not, you know, it's not just this, you know, covered wagon place. Uh, and I sort of dared myself to move there, not just for financial reasons, but because I could tell that I was becoming provincial in that way that only Mm, New Yorkers mm. are provincial. I could see it in myself. I just, you know, I had a certain set of values. I had a certain set of biases and I was, I, I was just wise enough to see it in myself 
maybe 30%. Right. And I knew that it was going to get more and more and more, and I was going to be able to see it less and less and less. So yeah, I did that thing and it was very random. And um, of course, the minute I moved to Nebraska, every magazine in New York wanted me to write for them about that. Right. <laughs> it was the time of the simplicity movement. Remember that? That yeah. was like the hot thing, like cleanse your life and real simple magazine had hmm. started. And um, yeah, I mean, I was doing NPR commentaries about living in Nebraska. And the funny thing is I had been obsessed with trying to be a commentator on NPR. People probably won't remember what this is, but it was like they had these kind of the equivalent of columnists, like people would do little audio essays, uh, you know, regularly on NPR. They had a kind of like a stable of columnists. And I and I wanted to be this so badly. And I had done demo after demo of things and sent them to NPR over, over the years and gotten nowhere. And the second I moved to Nebraska, they were huh. like, oh, yes, yes. You know, morning edition, you're a regular commentator. And um, I can only imagine how annoying that must have been to the Nebraskans to have <laughs> this girl from New York just parachute in and suddenly become the voice of <laughs> the voice of her generation of of Nebraska. Right. But there it was. Yeah, that that's uh, 20 years ago. I was doing those little NPR bits for uh, from, about travel from Thailand. You know, it was it was like a big deal. That was like a big career. Type yeah, thing. I'm sure. Exotic. Yeah. 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 And oh, for, exotic for them and a, and a big deal for for any writer. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. No. And, and I know that 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 provincial attitude recently I had an interviewer saying, oh, well, Maybe someday I'll go to Kansas, but I went to Virginia once and totally said something that wasn't very nice. And it's just like, how have you seen a map of the United States? You know, that I think that there there is sort of a, a New York way of thinking that it's either New York or not New York. Um, and yeah, I got the sense that this person thought maybe Kansas was in the South. You know, it was just it was just sort of a weird thing. So, so how did how did did that change your your outlook at all? Obviously, it changed your professional career a little bit. Um, um, why did you move on? Um, well, I lived there. I wrote a novel, um, and I had a lot of fun writing it. It was, um, really kind of send up of the media and the media's relationship to this like simplicity movement idea. Um, and so I kind of wrote a send up of my life in fictional form with a, with a main character who was like me, but much worse. Uh, you know, it was a, it was like a, it was a satirical novel. So I sold that, thank God, um, and for enough money that I was able to get out of debt. Hmm. And um, I don't know, like I could have, I guess, you know, I was like, well, should I go back to New York? But but that point, I had a dog, and I had been living on a little farm, and I thought, well, like I don't know, I can't take the dog back to New York. And I had a lot of friends in Los Angeles by then, and and I actually always loved L.A. too. I perversely. I, I perversely love LA. Um, and so I ended up moving out there um, with, you know, I had sort of the, the, the novel had been optioned for the movies and I did have hmm. like, there was a little, hmm. there was a little period of time where I was like being told I should try to be a screenwriter. And hmm. um, I was going, going on meetings and I had agents and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so I, that was sort of ostensibly part of the reason for going out there, but I, almost immediately I almost immediately lost interest in that uh in that game so I just I ended up like becoming a schlubby writer journalist in LA <laughs> quite happily 
Right. Well, and, and you seem to be a coastal person now, but in listening to your podcast, you often talk about the pivot, about the idea of getting paid less than was being offered 25 years ago, which I can relate to. Um, yeah. I wrote for Condé Nast Travel Publications 20 years mm. ago. And um, that, you know, $2 a word, $1.50 a word doesn't exist. In fact, it's, you know, it's just a fraction of that. Um, you've also talk about, you know, talked about your misgivings with social media, which I think is also a generational thing. Yes. And the idea of reinventing yourself in your 40s um, as technology changes. Uh, and so it sounds like, you know, this, my misspent youth was this, was this essay about sort of being broke in New York. Um, it sounds like you're still a coastal person who's still really having to hustle to make yeah. a living. Uh, and so how... How does that play out? And have you thought about going back to a Nebraska or Nebraska equivalent to simplify that aspect of your career? Yeah, um, it's such a great question. And you're, I can tell you thought a lot about this. You kind of put these pieces together. Hmm. I do, uh, you know, and, and I actually did um, on the podcast, I did a, a solo episode uh, at the end of at the end of last year about how I have never I, I really, in many ways, I feel the way I did in my early 20s when I was struggling and really not sure I was going to make it and terrified that I wasn't going to get to the place I wanted to get. Um, and yeah, uh, you know, I now do a podcast. I do not have a steady writing gig from like any kind of magazine. I don't have a salary. I don't have any income coming in from any source other than like my Patreon supporters. Hmm. Um, and we are a robust, but intimate group. Mm -hmm. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's incredibly frustrating and I hate complaining about it hmm. because it sounds just really whiny and self-indulgent, but at the same time, I think it's important to talk about because there are a lot of us going through this and you know, I've talked about how I think people in their 40s and 50s, Generation X people, whatever, um, we're in a particular bind because we're not social media natives. All the things that you have to do now to make your career work, if you're a creative person, if you're a content creator, which is what they now call artists, <laughs> right? Uh, are, everything that you have to do to make that work are things that were anathema to us. Hmm. Just coming of age, branding yourself, promoting yourself, um, you know, conveying your message with absolutely no irony. Those were like, that's selling the, out the least right? cool things you could do. Yeah. It's not only selling out, it's just embarrassing. Hmm. It's, it's so, so, you know, there's that on just a philosophical level, it's hard, but then even just on a, like a practical level, I am not good at social media. Like, I, I can do Twitter and I can say clever things and like Twitter kind of works for me, but I don't, I'm not somebody with hundreds of thousands of followers and I've never looked at TikTok. I honestly hmm. have never opened the app. I don't want to know. I don't care. So I, I think that, you know, the problem is that we don't, we do have to do these things in order to survive for the rest of our careers um, but we're not good at it for the most part. Obviously, there are some people who are. Um, we're not good at it, and we can't retire. Unlike the baby boomers, we can't just kind of back away slowly. Um, we have to make it work for at least another 15, 20 years. Uh, so we, it's 
sometimes I don't know. I really, I don't know how I'm going to, I could not tell you what things are going to look like in 10 years for me. I have absolutely no idea. Well, I appreciate the vulnerability that you bring. You say you hate complaining about it, but I think there's something relatable about that. I don't know if it's generation specific, um, but have have you thought about what's called geo arbitrage? Have you heard of that phrase? Geo arbitrage. No, it sounds great though. It, it's it's sort of I'm not. It's like a oh, what, what's the word? Lifestyle design catchphrase. Um, also a digital nomad catchphrase. It's basically mm-hmm. you make your financial life stronger by moving to Colombia or Bulgaria or Thailand um, mm-hmm. or Nebraska, right? And then then you sort of, since so many, especially creative pursuits, aren't geographically specific, although an argument could be made that you sort of have to be in New York to play the New York game, then you can live a richer life, you know, in Cambodia right. or Idaho or wherever um, while doing the same thing. Uh, and so have you thought about that or do you think that this next phase of your career is going to continue to be a coastal career? uh, Um, I thought about it and my feeling is that I did that once Hmm. I moved to Nebraska once. Um, I am at a point in my life where I really don't want to start over again in a new community. Hmm. Um, I have, you know, I'm very closely tied to New York. I'm very closely tied to Los Angeles I'm a little bit tied to Nebraska, um, I. But I just, you know, I am, I am not partnered. I don't have kids. I don't. My parents are not living. I don't really have. I have a brother. I do. We, we don't have any close family. We don't have. It's. I'm very much an independent person in the world, and it's important for me to be in a community where I know people and I have connections and I have ties to my colleagues and neighbors and there is some kind of sense of of community i think it's different um i I, i'm all i always tell people to move like i love moving don't get me wrong i used to say i hate traveling but i love to move um but i think it's a different equation if you have a partner um or maybe a family i'm not so keen on pulling kids out of school mm. without thinking hard about it. I don't, I think sometimes people are too cavalier about that, but, um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just feel like I'm a little bit over the starting over in a new place thing. Although you never know. I like the idea of living in the country hmm. well, <laughs> out I, in the woods somewhere. Did you, well, you wrote a piece for, it was in best American travel writing about that kind of, right? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. So the piece you're referring to, uh-huh. it's hilarious because it was so badly received. I got massively dragged on Twitter for it, huh. um, practically canceled. And then it ended up in best American travel writing right. of 2020, mind you, which <laughs> was not a big year for travel writing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, so yeah, during the, when the pandemic started, I, I, I was living in Manhattan and um, just for a couple of practical reasons, I ended up going down to Virginia hmm. or Kansas or Kansas, one or the other. I can't remember. Right. I don't know the difference right. between the two. And, and um, who, who would know the difference? Right? It doesn't matter. It right. doesn't matter. Um, so, no, I ended up uh, uh, finding this. Oh, see, I cringe even explaining this because this is like the kind of luxury privilege maneuver that just comes across really not. It's not a good look, but, right. you know, I'll be honest. Uh, right. Yeah. So I. I, I, I was getting, I was getting a dog. That was the other thing. So I had had this puppy that I was going to get and, um, it just happened to, it was going to be a nightmare with the puppy 
in Manhattan anyway. Uh, and I live in a big building and people were sick. I mean, people were already getting sick and just the idea of going up and down in the elevator. So I decided that I was going to uh, rent, uh, like find an Airbnb just as kind of like far away as possible that would take me and, um, and the dog. And, and I went down with a friend initially and, uh, I, I ended up in the Blue Ridge mountains in the Southwestern hmm. corner of Virginia. And it was spectacular. I ended up staying there for six months, mm-hmm. um, all by myself for most of it. And I got, I started the podcast there and it was absolutely hmm. gorgeous. And, um, it was almost in a way like the pandemic wasn't happening. Um, you know, so, uh, I did do that. Oh, that's right. So I had a gig, I was writing my last study writing gig was for medium. Now wow. medium does have a stable of columnists, writers that they pay in a normal way. Like it functions as a normal magazine. They have editors. It's not like you just post anything. So I had this gig writing for Medium, and my editor said, well, why don't, how about this month you write about the fact that you've done this? And I said, no, 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 that, I'm not stupid. Like, I will get canceled, or I will right. get dragged in a big right. way, because everybody's shaming everyone on social media for leave, having the privilege to leave New York. And right. um, But, you know, again, it was one of those things where it's like, well, I don't know what else to write about. Um, so I did, and I got really, really, um, it was ugly. I mean, it was ugly in a ridiculous way, but there you go. I'm curious about that just because I wonder, I'm going to think out loud here and you can say if this has any, any validity or not, but I wonder if that's part of that New York provincialism because, you know, like the privilege to leave New York city, it's so cheaper to live literally everywhere else than New York city. Um, and it feels like within the media environment, there was a real protectiveness about the idea of leaving New York city. And I'm going to be the one millionth person who complains about their modern love essay. that got turned down, but I wrote about meeting my wife in Kansas during the pandemic. We're both, we should have both been in, in Europe at the time. You know, it was, it was sort of a special mm-hmm. story, but underpinning it was the idea that, non-metropolitan places are can be special too. Um, and so it felt like somehow there was a tipping point of I'm leaving New York, this is a headache stories that you sort of got the black backlash for. Um, so do you think, I, am I right that there is, that there's sort of a, that was a provincial reaction or do you think there's a valid? No, I think it was a social justice reaction because it, it was a lot of like, how dare you, demean the people of this region by just thinking you can come down here with your germs um, hmm. and live in our community. Oh, yeah. I had a so lot it was Virginia of people, people who were mad. And it was Virginia people. And it was people basically who were active on social media who lived in places, you know, other than New York, like, you know, people hmm. who lived in Montana and people who lived, you know, in Kansas and anywhere huh. they were there. They oh, yeah, they really resented the idea that New Yorkers would just sort of use their, you know, use their home as a kind of plague vacation land. Okay, so it's the um, opposite can, of what I assumed. That's interesting. Yeah, no, no, I think that's what it was. I mean, there was a lot, and then there were, you know, these New Yorkers were just, and also the people in New York had all this pride about how they were staying in a city and toughing it out. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah, I was hearing stories like up in places like Vermont and Maine, like there was some kind of underground business in selling New Yorkers license plates 
of the state or even or just of any, uh, you know, of the state that they were in or any state other than New York. So mm-hmm. they wouldn't have to drive around with New York license plates and be a target of vitriol. Goodness. <laughs> Wow, yeah. I I had no idea. I don't I don't know if it made it this far. Maybe you got hate mail from Kansas. Um, but th- there's always been that cliche. Oh, I I wouldn't want to drive in the middle of America with New York plates. And it's like, well, what does that even mean? But I hadn't known of this sort of the outflow of of upper middle class yeah. people. It comes out of. Um, I mean, I understand it actually, and I it, it just it comes out of a resentment of New Yorkers. And, Hmm. you know, there's a, now there's a currency in righteous indignation, obviously. So it was a way of capitalizing on that. Um, you know, and I mean, I have to say like, even though it's been over 20 years since I went to Nebraska, I do look at that now through a different lens, um, and ask myself, wow, like, I hope I wasn't as obnoxious as my character in the novel right, right. is in moments, for instance, like I really, I, I now see that I kind of, I had this sort of like, you know, Holly go lightly, like, you know, here's this crazy girl from New York and she's moved to Nebraska and right. everyone's going to be so excited about it. And, uh, I don't think that would really land now. However, this was when I went there, there was no social media. There was barely any internet, like the, just the whole entire kind of framework for thinking about oneself was different. So um, it might not be a fair comparison. Well, it sounds like you were leveling microaggressions in the one part of the country where people don't really care about them, that, that, that there's sort of these New York assumptions that your character would bring to, to a Nebraska that would be irritating, you know, in a way that is not directly offensive, but just sort of wearying at times. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, I mean, there's the, the novel ultimately is about how how the Midwest is a lot less provincial than hmm. I mean, it's yeah, it's about you know, a whole, whole bunch of things. We don't need to go into that. But yeah, but just, you know, in, in terms of living different places, like, you know, earlier when you were talking about what is it? What did you call it? Geographical arbitrage? Yeah. Geo arbitrage. It's worth looking up. Um, you, it might and does it have you. specifically to do with um, moving abroad, like, or is it? Can it just be anywhere? Well, it, that it implies moving abroad. Like, I, I can apply it to my own situation, but I grew up in Kansas, and I sort of came full circle after many years of living overseas and in places like New York. But it usually means taking those office remote office tools that you have skills that you have and moving to a cheaper country uh, moving to a part of the world where just you have less overhead and expenses plus you have maybe a nice beach or mountains that you can hike every day it's, it's basically improving your quality of life by taking your interests to a part of the world where your interests be they hiking or sitting on the beach or eating certain kinds of food cost a lot less right but see i would worry that then there's a kind of you know, there's a sort of colonialist element to that. I, I just, I, I would worry about, you know, coming across as a sort of ugly American kind of just carpetbagger. But maybe I'm just, I'm just paranoid. I mean, I, you, ha- you would have to do it in such a way that you were involved in the community yeah. and giving back in some clear, you know, obvious way. Like, you, I think you need to make it, you would have to like really make sure that you are kind of doing, doing it in the right way. 
Well, that's a that's a very Gen X way of thinking of it. I, they actually have digital. Well, no, it's a very millennial way of thinking about it, actually. But I mean, I, yeah, I would worry. Like, I would if I was going to go live in like a like a you know developing world sort of place, and like have my little laptop and write about my life there. I would really worried about. I would be worried about people getting upset with me on Twitter, perhaps rightfully so. Um, they might, they might. I, I think this digital nomad world, um, there's a lot of co- digital nomad compounds in places like Bali or Tulum or really? Soviet Georgia. Yeah, you should look into this. I mean, not for yourself, so you but just, just hang you know, around with expatriates. Well, this so is the thing. This is, this is what I'm not quite, this is what doesn't quite sit well with me because I've lived overseas, but I've always just sort of found my own place to stay and sort of n- negotiated my own interactions with the culture I'm in. Now there's these compounds where you can be in Bali in a community full of Europeans and Americans and Brazilians and Israelis who you network with and you share your Wi-Fi with. And it's in another country, but not completely of it. There's been a lot of criticisms of it. Um, now, I'm not really a believer in the digital nomad compound. I'm more of just go someplace and it's not that hard, you know, find your own way to live and learn a little bit of the language, which admittedly I'm not that great at. But um, I think there's a way to enjoy the economics of living in a, in a cheaper place without completely separating yourself from it in with this colonial attitude. I think there's a, there's a sort of a humble grassroots way of doing it, although it doesn't appear much on social media. If you look at the, the Instagrams of geo-arbitrage digital nomads, it's usually the hot dog legs with a laptop and an infinity pool. Um, and I know I'm generalizing. <laughs> I, so, I apologize for my listeners who live more nuanced digital nomad lives. But um, yeah, I, I think that anxiety is a worthy one, but there, it's not that hard to get around that colonialist aspect of it. I mean, I'm certain there's certain aspects of Twitter that would judge you regardless, but you could do almost anything and be judged by certain yeah, aspects I, I of know, Twitter. That's true. You, you don't have to like, you know, leave your room to get judged by t- Twitter. Yeah. Right, right. Um, yeah, no, that's interesting. I, I, yeah, I'll have to think about that. It, it's so funny that you aren't familiar with it. I guess I've been so, I've been travel adjacent for so long and I often get interviewed myself by people who are living this life that, um, I just assume everybody knows about it. Um, and, and of course I'm I did living not. In, yeah, no, I mean, I'm living in my own Kansas way, but this is, this is my home state. I have a lot of affection and I'm literally not colonizing this place. And, and, you know, the idea of, you know, a New Yorker coming to Kansas and feeling guilty for paying $2 for beer instead of 12 Seems weird, right? Um, and so maybe going to Sumatra and paying cheaper prices isn't going to bother the Sumatrans as, as much as we assume it might. Um, but right. this brings up an, an interesting thing. You know, we're talking about Twitter and sort of the self-consciousness that comes with like moving to Virginia and having blowback that you didn't anticipate. In a way, part of your career pivot is has dovetailed with the culture wars. Um, was that on purpose or, or accidental? Because it's it's a very clickbaity topic, and it feels like maybe <laughs> it has accidentally been good for your profile. Well, I mean, I've been writing about the culture wars for several years now. I mean, in a way, I've been writing the, the stuff that I think about and write about is, in a lot of ways, the same stuff that I was thinking about and writing about in 1995. Hmm. It's just that it's been completely uh, recalibrated in the in the culture and and in the sort of in the minds of the of the intellectual 
liberal establishment. Um, well, well, there was a wave of the culture wars that was sort of receding about 1995. It was more academically focused. Oh, yeah, that was the PC thing. Yeah, 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 I mean, yeah. That, It was like, yeah, I mean, political correctness was kind of, was an in-joke among the left. Yeah. And it was just something that existed, like, in humanities departments on, on campuses. Yeah, so that went away, and, you know, there were waves of, you know, there were sort of cultural trends and movements of various varying degrees of irritation. But um, how would you yeah. define the culture wars? I'm sorry, just just so my audience oh, yeah. has a sense for this. How would you define the culture wars? <laughs> I love it. I don't know what um, what uh, geo arbitrage geo arbitrage is, and and your audience doesn't know what the culture wars is. That actually makes me happy. Right. Um, well, I mean, it just has to do with the way that certain everything has been politicized. Uh, by by the left and the right, and like a, a culture war issue, for example, would be you know a lot of free speech. Should should certain speakers be platformed on campus? There are a lot of college campuses that don't want anybody coming and giving a speech who's not like firmly on the left, um, and so they'll shut down they'll shut down speakers um, and uh, or you know they don't. There's you know not allowed to teach certain. Uh, types of literature anymore because it's sexist or it's racist. There's an obsession with identity, um, you know, and this has been brewing up for the last, I, I started noticing it probably around 2014, mm. um, especially in relationship to the conversation around women, you know, suddenly it became, there was currency online in complaining about the patriarchy, the same women who had benefited from, second wave feminism and, you know, by all measures, we're doing much better than most men, uh, suddenly we're saying things like, oh, you know, just, just being a woman in the world is a struggle every day. And, you know, and it didn't make any sense to me. Uh, so I started thinking about it and, and writing about it. And, um, you know, then Me Too came along and Trump came along. And, you know, with that came an entire media culture that was, that was kind of wrapped around the flag of resistance. Huh. You know, any any kind of reporting uh, about the world or any type of observation really was just you know had this this valence of of leftist political resistance or 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 on the right. But you know the the left has won the culture. I think it's it's fair to say. Anyway, so I started writing about that. And it was stuff that I had always written about. I mean, I was a Los Angeles Times columnist from 2005 to 2016, basically. I remember that. And yeah, I, yeah and I wrote columns um, that that would be unpublishable today because they were critical of, you know, or they were just sort of, you know, they were critical of everybody. They were sort of making fun of of all kinds of people equally. And I was considered firmly on the left. I mean, nobody batted an eye. Uh, I might not have been some sort of, you know, progressive darling, but I certainly was not considered problematic. Um, and suddenly the, the, those very sorts of ideas and types of writing were sort of verboten. Huh. Um, and so I really started you know, resisting the resistance, resisting the hashtag resistance. And I was really wanted nuance and I wanted to look at issues honestly and try to solve problems, you know, through innovative solutions. And that requires having honest conversations about root causes and all these things that a lot of people on the left don't want to look at. And a lot of people on the right look at in a really stupid way. That's the uh -huh. problem is like 
there is just such the total lack of nuance on both sides. Um, well, it feels so, like the the left has suddenly become evangelical. It has these qualities yeah. that that mirror the evangelical communities I knew in the early '90s, and the right has sort of become pagan. You know, it, it, yeah. And a lot of young people don't realize that it used to be the the right that was like the the purity police. Yeah. You know, the the church lady and Jesse Helms. You know policing the arts and, you know, putting labels on on records. I know it was Tipper Gore leading that who was not a Republican, but uh, yeah, in any case, um, I started talking about this stuff and, um, you know, a lot of the, a lot of my colleagues weren't happy about it. And, um, you know, I got labeled a little bit of a, little bit of a heretic, not too much of one. I don't want to overplay that. I think people sometimes like, fancy themselves more problematic than they really are but Mm. um yeah that that changed and then you know at the same time the business model of the media was changing and everything just kind of happened at once so um i'm sort of politically homeless and uh institutionally homeless (laughs) at the same time did this Uh, start during your la times tenure no, okay. no, it started, I mean, I started noticing it in 2014 and I was still writing the column at that time. I don't think I was writing it every single week, but um, no, it really started when, I mean, I published my book, The Problem With Everything, My Journey Through the New Culture Wars. Hmm. Uh, it came out in late 2019 and I had started it in 2016. It was quite an odyssey trying to figure out how to frame up that book. Um, uh, Yeah, no, I think it really, I was noticing it. I was noticing rumblings of this before the rise of Trump. And then as soon as the Trump era started, it was like all hands on deck. Every, there was no question that everything was going to be seen through the lens of some sort of uh, feeling of oppression and some of it was warranted and some of it wasn't, but, and then, you know, and then the algorithm of social media favored, uh, the most, the most extreme reaction and the biggest grievance. And so like all, all these things coalesced, right. And, um, it's worked out great for people who are very didactic. Um, and it's a little tougher for us in the, nuance camp see i've branded nuance right nuanced af is that my podcast logo it's obviously you sell mugs i sell mugs i look i sell rolf i this is i never thought that you know i would when i was starting out as a writer i never dreamed that i would grow up to sell merchandise (laughs) i have mugs i have shirts i have magnets i have stickers travel thermoses you the the generation x gods are frowning at you right now Oh, they're gagging. They're right. literally vomiting in their mouths. It's interesting how, like you brought up how um, the culture, my, my audience might not know the term culture wars. Your audience might not know the, the term uh, arbitrage. In a way, I've sort of avoided this, one, because I don't use Twitter very much either, but also I've sort of been very politically neutral. I've always been about encouraging anyone to travel regardless of their background. But it feels like, 
Um, it might be hard for me to avoid too. I mean, travel and the travel milieu, it's, it's very complicated because what is travel writing? It could be consumer travel writing or more repertorial travel writing, but it's, it's mixed up in that post-colonial, uh, you know, critique that used to be an academic one and is now a more vociferous social media one. Um, and much like you have things you wrote about for the LA times, um, that you think you couldn't write now, there's some things that I talk about to my audience you know, especially like younger audiences at colleges that I probably won't do anymore uh, simply because they talk about, there's that word again, certain nuances. Like if I talk about eating boshantong in Korea, which is a dog meat stew, which a lot of mostly older men ate when I lived there 25 years ago, um, that really upsets people. And my lesson is, a, you know, my lesson, my point of talking about a, a dog meat stew in Korea was to flip it around and say, well, you know, my Korean students would say, sure, some of our older men eat dog meat stew, but what do you do with your older people when they get old? We move them into our house and you move them into an old folks home, right? You outsource <laughs> right, people. Right, Well, yeah. that was a great lesson. Strong man argument, strong man argument. Right. Well, it's just people, there was a point at which it just the room got cold and people weren't thinking about the lesson inherent. They were just thinking, well, he just said something insulting about Asian people, even though it's not like everybody ate it and it was mostly older men, but... I, I sort of had sort of lost my audience, and I I don't care about the political valence. I just want them to to, to think about things. Yeah, it's it's maddening. It's yeah. it really is. And and I I worry about this sometimes as a person who talks about travel a lot. And I think one reason why I don't I've never really talked about politics much in the context of travel. You sort of learn a lot of lessons by just being in other culture and making mistakes. I worry that younger generations aren't willing to make mistakes or at least talk about them. And it felt like one well, they, yeah, one great can't. thing about travel is that it allows you to be a fool every day and allows you to come up against your limitations and what you don't know. Uh, and it feels like we sort of front-loaded our, our knowledge and we, we sort of want to be correct about everything when in fact, again, travel is why I never really talked about it in a political lens, is just teaches you what other cultures are like and what it's like to be an outsider and, and all of these things. Um, and so right. that's that's really interesting. Yeah, I don't I think that it's when you say it's not so much about victimization, I think it's about power. It's an obsession with hmm. power imbalances. So hmm. I think there would be a sense like and it unfortunately it always it, it boils down to not even it, it boils down to literally skin pigmentation. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, it's not even like. Yeah. So if it, I think if a white American goes to Germany or Scandinavia, um, that's going to have a different kind of, you know, potentially that's going to be viewed by this, you know, so-called woke crowd differently than if a white American goes to Thailand or someplace in Africa, or basically, you know, the majority of, of, of places in the world, um, are not majority white. So, well, uh, it's funny that you mentioned Thailand because I've literally read articles about sort of the misbehavior of Americans and Europeans in Thailand, which is annoying and understandable. But demographically, there's way more Chinese tourists there now, right? That, right. That, that like Thailand is the Cancun for certain Chinese urban populations. You know, it's it's the Ibiza in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we have such this narcissistic American lens through which we view everything that I think if you're not willing to go to another place and see things not through your identity group in the United States, but as a generic American, whatever your background is in another country, if you allow yourself that, then you'll learn a lot. And you'll see that 
you know, maybe a lot of the development that's ruining beaches in Thailand isn't necessarily driven these days by Europeans and North Americans. It's often China-based. And I think it's, yes. it's those, those nuances and those contexts that we're not getting on Twitter that travel is huge um, for informing us of. And I, you know, fingers that's crossed. A, that's, a, that's a really good point. And I, and I hadn't thought of that either. So travel has not become politicized. Well, no, it has. I mean, it but, has, but obviously. I'm I'm trying to have this conversation without letting it drift that way, um, right? And I think that there's a lot of people who are really tied into certain notions of guilt or certain kinds of, of, of swagger about taking their little identity silo to another part of the country, be it sort of guilt for being white or sort of defensiveness for being not white, and not seeing outside of that silo, which is a very American silo, and and you know suddenly yes. you're in. Brazil or Bulgaria or Zimbabwe, and the rules are completely different. And you're not going to see any of those countries if you're still judging everything through this identity-based silo through which we are strangely encouraged to see things now, especially on social media. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And, you know, with the pandemic, do you think that just travel is going to lessen in some kind of permanent way? I mean, how, are we ever going to catch up again? Well, that's a good question, you know, because 100 years ago after the Spanish flu, of course, so many historical factors are different. I mean, the Roaring Twenties came after, you know, the, the, the Paris expatriates were right after the influenza right. pandemic. There have been a lot of, actually, tr- a lot of travel media came about after the influenza pandemic. So I think a lot of the fear, again, this is, there's a lot of clickbait fear going on and there's a lot of legitimate anxiety going on right now, but it's about the consumerist side of travel, which is, what did you, who did you write for? Allure magazine? Well, I was, I answered the phone okay. at, at Allure. I've written for, you know, I've written for Condé Nast Traveler and, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, no. I, yeah. Well, well, me too. And I don't know, I, I feel pretty happy about what I wrote for Connie Nast Traveler, but that there's sort of this consumerist notion of what travel is that has been propped up by decades of travel media yes. that is more about sort of the annoying stuff that you ran into, that you depicted in your Nebraska novel, um, you know, sardonically through your protagonist about just sort of the superficiality that's tied to how we talk about different ways of life. So I think the consumer side of travel is definitely suffering, but I think people who want to travel can certainly do it. Um, And, you know, you don't want to be sloppy, but I think what people forget is that like people traveled through generations of plagues. Alexander Kinglake's Eothen was written in the 1830s and that was during a time of plague. And he spent a lot of time in in quarantines. Um, And he talked about the paranoid expats in Constantinople and, you know, how friendly the Egyptians were, despite the fact that there was a plague, plague, that this has been part of the conversation for a long time. But we feel like we're in this historically unique situation. um, And, you know, it's the end times for travel. Hey, dog. Right. I heard that. Oh, that dog. That's not my dog. That's okay. a dog down the street. Wow. This must be a good mic. Yeah. That dog is in far in the distance. Excellent. Um, I, I'm sorry. I don't recognize your dog by its bark. Um, but yeah, I, I just want, um, I guess it's that travel is this really unique vernacular if you allow it to be. If you can look past that consumer aspect, I think a lot of the post-colonial critiques of travel are with that consumer aspect where travel is a backdrop for a consumer act as opposed to a real cross-cultural interaction. Um, I have a new book. That's fascinating. I just finished a new book. Uh, My listeners won't know this. I asked you to, I asked Tachi like 11 months ago and then I got a new book and it's going to (laughs) come out in October. Um, And it'll just be interesting to see how it's received because I haven't, 
in a certain sense, I haven't had a purely travel book come out since like 2008. So I'm really interested to see what the conversation around it is because there's this anxiety about pandemic travel, but then there's also this conversation where people, you know, young people really want to be right about things. They want to know what the correct attitude is to take things, you know, to, to other cultures when in fact making mistakes and being a fool has always been what's has made travel amazing. Is that sort of the premise of the book? Is that main theme? It, it, it isn't. Um, it's more, do you know a, a book like the daily stoic? Have you heard of the daily stoic? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, so it's like the Daily Vagabond. It's it's like 366, like an, a, a quote about travel followed by a reflection about travel. Um, and it's sort of, over the course of the year, it sort of, it follows the uh, a journey through inspiration and planning through the early stages, through the deeper stages towards coming home over the course of a year. And so we'll see how it's received, but I, I really put a lot of thought into this about, I mean, this is why I know Alexander Keelink's book, just the way people have talked about travel, not just in the last 10 years, but in the last thousand or 3000 years, you know, that travel as a human act, travel mm-hmm. as a human vernacular. Uh, and I, I have no idea, you know, it, it's funny. I've, I've done different things. I got, I, like you, I've done podcasting. I did some teaching for a while. I still do a little bit of teaching, but, uh, I'm really curious. It could have been why I was, I was asked to talk to you that I'm, I've, I've never really been hammered. And I think it's hard to say anything about, like you say, you, you walk out the door and somebody gets mad on you on Twitter. So um, I'd like to think that the book covers, you know, a huge global diversity of voices, but I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know if people are willing to sort of have that calm, silent, mistake-friendly uh, way of looking in the world that, that yeah. travel has always embraced. Oh man, you'll have to come on my podcast and talk about it. Well, I'm I'm happy to. In the fall. Yeah, no, this is like I have not um gosh, I have not thought about travel as a genre or an activity in a long time now. I'm embarrassed and sad to say. Well, a lot of people haven't. I mean, I think to a certain extent, travel writing is canceled, for lack of a better word. I mean, there's just a, a lot of sloppy travel writing has been done, not just over the decades, but over the centuries. Um, but as a vernacular, I mean, the novel came out of travel writing. You know, the, the travel writing has always been a part of this conversation that is about what you make sense of cultures that are not you. And sometimes it's done right. poorly, and sometimes it's it's done earnestly and well, but I don't think cancel culture cares. <laughs> so I think a, a I mean, part of- the obsession, well, I mean, the obsession with cultural appropriation mm-hmm. would make it extra challenging to talk and write about travel, international travel anyway. Yeah, yeah. And then, I mean, anytime to talk about cultural appropriation, it sort of requires at least an hour of background, right? Um, and to sort of agree on how human culture is appropriative, you know. Um, and I actually have a lot of chapters in the new book about how people for, for generations have been going to Vanuatu or Tanzania and saying, oh, well, these cultures aren't authentic because they're wearing blue jeans and tennis shoes. And it's like, <laughs> well... I mean, that's, if that's their choice, then how is it, you know, how is that a bad thing? You know, this is sort of your fantasy of authenticity. I think right. that appropriation is a multidirectional thing. And I think it's a, you could almost create an app, like the cultural appropriation app, that just sort of tells you <laughs> what you should feel about any travel story. 
you know, <laughs> or anything at all, any food that you order in a restaurant, any anything you wear. I love that idea. Well, I'm only somewhat facetious when I say that because literally so much of the critiques I've read since maybe 2014, it's like, well, this logic is so direct and flat that why can't an algorithm, you know, the algorithm is driving your clickbait. So why doesn't the algorithm just write the article? Because it's sort of following this, this same, it's the stuff that was written about in academic circles in the late 80s and early 90s, but now it's sort of a click-friendly version. And I think it's, it's a good part of the conversation, but there's not really a conversation happening. There's, there's no, can you tell no. me more about that button on Twitter? There's no, that's interesting, but I'm not sure I agree with it, button on Twitter. Button on Twitter, you know? It's, it's so contentious by design. Yeah. Uh, that, that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, you're, you're talking about an AI approach to writing. So we're going to have artificial intelligence writing our pieces for us. I think that's entirely possible. No, I th- I think our highly I'm politicized pieces, you know, like <laughs> like that basically there's no basically it's it's some sort of um gussied up version of Foucault. Um right. And it's there's not a lot of it's always sort of the same thing. And I don't want to be too I don't want to be too flippant about the core of the argument, but it's like there is no conversation. It's like you sort of know if you're talking about cultural appropriation, you never there. There's no room to talk about how c- cultural appropriation has always influenced human culture. It's just always this one way cultural appropriation bad type yeah. s- scenario, which I used to read in postcolonial critiques, which were interesting. But I know, and, 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 and now it's on Gawker. Yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. one annoying thing about those, and I'm sorry if I'm getting a little ranty here, but one annoying thing about reading post-colonial critiques is that they were just so... Do you remember a, a, a magazine called Lingua Franca? Of course. Yeah. Um, it's not. A, it was not a French magazine. Right. Some people thought it was. I, I, I never read it, but they had an anthology called... Quick studies, I think, that I found in it was a thrift about store. Academia, just so people yeah. know, it was a magazine. It was a, it was like um, it was a general interest as far as these things go. Magazine about academia, right? But it pushed back in a way that you sort of do against these tropes. But it was when they were academic conclusions that basically, why should we uh, why should we use Foucault to analyze travel writing when we would never use Foucault to travel, you know, that, you know, why, why analyze the Lonely Planet Guide through Foucault when you would never, you know, <laughs> right. use Foucault instead of a Lonely Planet? I mean, that, he, he was sort of being snarky there, but just the idea that even during that generation, during the political correctness during, versus the woke phase of this conversation, it was, a very, it was still a very flat conversation. The academic people were getting points for trotting out, for reheating you know, hitting the, the quick heat reheat button on Foucault for 60 seconds and getting their conclusion, you know, that there wasn't a lot of nuance in that. Um, yeah. well, now that it's a social media thing, it's sort of the same algorithm. Um, but for different reasons, there's less of a conversation going on. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so there's, there's my l- little ranty cultizac that who knows if I'll keep in this or not, but it's just something. Well, my I- audience loves that kind of thing. So This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Megan Downs' books and podcasts, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. 
This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Thank you.